0: My name's Adrian, and I'm one of the pastors here at Carnegie Free. If we haven't yet connected, I'd love to meet you after the service. We are so grateful that you chose to worship with us today. know that there's many places you could be on Sunday, but we appreciate you choosing to be here with us. As Cody just noted, this is a place that we believe every person matters, so whatever it is that you brought into this place, we're glad that you're here. You matter to us, you matter to God, and we hope you can have a great time of connecting with the Lord, and if we can help you connect with other people We'd love to do that Well, whenever the time is right for you. Hey, I'd like to uh, just take a moment and pray together, if we could, for um, those who are obviously grieving in Parkland, Florida. Uh, it wasn't that long ago that when these kinds of things happened and I was a pastor, I would just stop what I was doing and I'd preach on that. But uh, now they happen all the time, tragically. And so, I'm not going to do it every time that it happens. <laughs> we have other things that we have to talk about, but we are going to pray. And so, I'd ask if you would join me in praying for the victims of this terrible shooting. We'll ask God's help to us today as well, and for those who are still in recovery there in Parkland as well. Would you please? Father, we thank you for this morning. We're grateful for the opportunity to worship here in this place in freedom, we're grateful, Lord, for the community that we call home in Carney, and for all the other surrounding communities, many of whom are represented here at this church this morning. Uh, God, many of us have brought in some heavy burdens from our own lives. We talk about a great tragedy in our nation this week, but many of us are dealing with heavy burdens ourselves—challenges in our relationships, challenges of health, loved ones who have recently passed away, a difficult diagnosis, financial difficulties. All of this, Lord, we bring before your throne. God, we know that you are always present when we gather together, when two or three are gathering in your name, you're there with us, that you are the omnipresent God, you're always available to us, Holy Spirit, and yet we also know that we can call on you and ask you in this hour to be especially present with us, to anoint our time together, to speak to us and lead us, and so we ask, Lord, that you would do that for each of us this morning, that you would meet us in our place of need for those who are hurting today. We invite you. And Father, we pray particularly your blessing, your help to those who are grieving in Parkland, Florida, those who are still hospitalized. We pray for their healing. Those families who have lost a child this week, unfathomable, We ask your help to those families. We pray, God, for wisdom for our nation. We pray for an end to this violence. Uh We ask, God, that you would help the church in that area and the community in that area to surround those who are now brokenhearted, and you would personally care for them even right now. We love you, Lord. We ask for your help to our nation as it feels troubled today. Would you please help? Now I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're just joining us, we are in a series that we've titled God's Story, Our Story, in which we're venturing through the Bible in a year. It's a big task, but we're looking at 40 major episodes in the Bible over the course of this year. Last week, we talked about the priority that God places on family in numerous different episodes in the book of Genesis. If you weren't here last week and you're struggling in your family, I encourage you to go back and listen to that message. It was so encouraging to me last Sunday to hear from a number of you who said, we're on the 11th hour in our marriage right now, but you have given us what we need today, or we've been convicted today that we're going to fight for this marriage. We're going to stick to God's blueprint. We're going to strive for forgiveness with one another, and we're going to spend our very best resources on the relationships that God has given, which are most important to us. So if you weren't here last week and you're struggling in that domain, as all of us do from time to time, go back and listen to that message either on our Facebook post or at carnieefree.com. Today we're going to get into the story of Joseph which brings us from Genesis 38 through 50. We won't cover it all this morning, but it is vivid drama. As I was processing this message, I thought about this passage from the book of Romans chapter 15. Let me read it for you today, and perhaps it'll help guide our thinking as we go through these episodes, the story in Genesis 38 through 40. Do we have that verse, Romans 15:4? Here it is. Everything that was written in the past, was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures, endurance taught in the Scriptures, and the encouragement that they provide, we might have, what's the word? We might have hope that through the endurance taught to us by the Scriptures, through the encouragement the Scriptures from the past provided, we might have hope, and that's the a resonating message from the Bible that we read again and again in the New Testament. The Old Testament is given to us that we would endure. That we would be encouraged. That we would have hope. What if that were true? That even through Joseph's story today, we would endure a little bit more. We would have more encouragement. We would have more hope. I want to just tell the story today of Joseph's life. It's a remarkable life. And then draw out a few principles along the way because it is vivid drama. Israel, again, is not yet a nation. The Hebrew people are a small band of about 70 or so. And from Jacob's family would come many descendants. But at this point in God's story, you have this vulnerable nomadic tribe This group of people that have kind of wandered and settled in a land called Canaan that is not yet their land. One day in the future, it will become their land. And God told Abram way back in Genesis 12 that I'm going to make you into a great nation and I will bless the other nations of the world through you. Then he reaffirmed that promise to Abraham. And then he reaffirmed that promise to Isaac, Abraham's son, and then to Jacob, It's this promise that's stated about four different times in the book of Genesis. I'm going to do this. I'm going to bless you, but not for your own sake. Instead, I'm going to bless you that you would be a blessing to others, a blessing to the other nations of the world. Well, Joseph is an oops baby of sorts, we might call him. He's the 11th son to Jacob. They're an older couple now, Jacob and Rachel. They have 10 older boys, and at an older age, they didn't expect another. But they have Joseph, and they're grateful for it, and Father Jacob ends up favoring one of his sons over the others. And we all know how that goes. So Jacob favors Joseph over his 10 other older brothers, and he gives him this technicolor dream coat that Joseph wears around with great pride wherever he goes, while his brothers just get Kind of lime green tunics. Put it another way, they're in Canaan where there's sand all over the place. Joseph gets a Corvette while the rest of his brothers get little bikes. I mean, what would that produce in you if you're that brother? A little bit of jealousy, right? It triggered in these other brothers a feeling of jealousy. Now listen to these two verses from Genesis 37, verse 3 and 5. Israel, who's been renamed from Jacob to Israel, his new name is Israel, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, and they, they hated his guts. Because it never goes well when one child is favored over the other children. The family dinner table was not a very pleasant place in Jacob and Rachel's home. On top of favoritism, Joseph was like this dream analyst way before Sigmund Freud or Carl Jung. And he would have these vivid dreams which he would then interpret for his brothers. And the Bible doesn't tell us whether he was arrogant in interpreting these dreams or not, but certainly he didn't have that much prudence. He shouldn't have shared these dreams well with his brothers, but because it evoked it I, I, and another emotion in the brothers, a, an emotion of, of anger in his brothers, because the dreams went, went like this. First, there was one, he says, you, my brothers, are like these sheaves in a field, and you're kind of bending over, bowing to another sheaf in the field, which is me. And I'm taller and stronger, and you're all bowing to me. And then he goes on to share another dream, and it's about these stars in the sky and the moon and the sun. And he said, the moon and the sun, that's my parents, Jacob and Rachel, and the stars, that's my brothers. And there's another star that is brighter still. And guess who that is? That's Joseph. And all the other lights are bowing down to him, which triggered this other emotion in the brothers like, I'm going to kick your, oh yeah, I'm taking you down, Joseph. So one day when Joseph left the safe confines of Jacob and Rachel's home and he went out into the fields to check on the flocks, his brothers developed this scheme for what they're going to do with this dreamer. And the scheme was, well, we're going to take him and kill him. And we're going to tell dad that he was devoured by lions. There's a number of different subplots along the way, and eventually what they end up doing is putting him in a pit, taking him out of the pit, and then selling him to these gypsies that are traveling through south into Egypt, and they say, we might as well get some money for our brother. They sell him for 20 shekels, and he becomes baggage, eventually sold to Egypt, treated like camel and cattle of the day. They keep that technicolor dream coat, they dip it in blood, they rip it into pieces, and they bring it back to their father, Jacob, and they explain to dad that he was devoured by lions. Jacob mourns, and the brothers laugh with wicked glee. Dysfunctional family, anyone? Like I said last week, the Bible takes the cake on dysfunctional families. If you come in here today and you've come from a broken family, you're not alone. If you come in here today and you've been betrayed by someone in your family, you're certainly not alone. If you come in here today and you say, we have so much family drama in our background, there's no way that God would ever use people like us. Well, you are mistaken. Because what we see in the scriptures is the God of the second chance, the third chance, the fat chance, and no chance at all. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis 39, and we'll pick up the story there. And as we open to Genesis 39, whether it be in your Bible or uh, a paper Bible, You're know, using your phone, however you do it is just fine. If you don't have a Bible and you like one, we'd love to give one to you. We have them for free out of the information table. That would be our gift to you. But what we're going to see here in Genesis 39 is Joseph's story is about beating betrayal by the power of God who is with us. It's about our beating betrayal, whatever betrayal we might be facing even today, by the power of God who is with you today. Joseph was betrayed, of course, by his brothers. And after he's betrayed by his brothers, he falls into the hands of a powerful man by the name of Potiphar. And We pick up the story there in Egypt in Genesis 39 and verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything that he owned. From the time he put him in charge of the household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything that Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. I'd like you to notice this morning that God was with Joseph in his work. This is so encouraging to us that God would be with us in our vocations, in our homes, in our neighborhoods. We American Christians have this tendency to divide secular work from spiritual work. The Bible provides no such division. One of the things that I love about the Bible is how earthy it is. And what you see in Joseph's story and Daniel's story and many others, particularly in the Old Testament, is that there is no division between your work and my work. That what you do is every bit as spiritual as my work if it is done as unto the Lord. And that's what we see from Joseph here. He does his work on a day in and day out basis. He says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it as unto the Lord, not unto men. And so Joseph is reporting to a man who in all likelihood consulted with magicians. And he's reporting to a man who in all likelihood practiced idolatry. Now, Joseph, we don't find Joseph complaining about how this man was not a Christian. Complaining about his non Christian boss. That doesn't do you any good to complain about your non Christian boss. What you see Joseph doing instead is putting his hand to the plow and making a difference and doing great work because he knew ultimately, while he might report to Potiphar in this moment, ultimately he's reporting to God. You hear what I'm saying? There ain't no reason to complain about who we report to. What we do is serve as unto the Lord and not unto men. So Joseph Joseph is around Potiphar's family each and every day. And one evening, Potiphar's wife, as the story goes on, comes to Joseph and asks to lie with him. And she's a beautiful woman. And he says no. She comes back the, the next night and the next night and the next night. And eventually she comes to him and she begs for him what did Joseph do in this moment? Let me tell you what he didn't do. He didn't linger. He didn't hang out and look into her beautiful eyes. He didn't tarry in the moment and kind of negotiate in his mind, can I get away with this? Or how much can I get away with before I get into trouble? Joseph fled. The Bible says he picked up in a sprint in the opposite direction such that Potiphar's wife is holding a portion of his garment as he ran out of his household. I was talking to a gentleman here in this church who tells me his daily practice is to read the Wall Street Journal. And so last week he opened up the Wall Street Journal online and as it was Valentine's Day, he opens it up and the advertisement that comes before his eyes, though he did not ask for it, was for Victoria's Secret. What do you do in that moment? This is what he did. He X'd it out, clicked down the computer, and stepped away. Listen, to do that in the moment of temptation, whatever your temptation is, anger, lust, greed, gluttony, racism, whatever it might be, In the moment of temptation, you don't have enough strength. you got to decide ahead of time, this is what I'm going to do when that temptation comes to me. And that's what Joseph did. He decided ahead of time, when Potiphar's wife comes to me, I'm going to flee in the opposite direction. Don't trust yourself enough to believe that you can overcome every temptation on your own. No, you got to have the conviction to make decisions ahead of time and have community around you and then decision to move when temptation comes to us. So, all of this to say, he is betrayed once again. First, he's betrayed by his brothers. Then he's betrayed by Potiphar's wife because he's framed for this. And because of it, he gets thrown in jail for the next two years. We find Joseph. He's in jail. He's in prison for, for a couple years. And while he's there, he's serving some other prisoners. One of the things that he does to serve another prisoner is interpret this dream. That prisoner gets released from jail and Joseph says to to the prisoner, would you please remember me when you go to Pharaoh that I was the one who helped you while you were in jail? Would you remember me and perhaps Pharaoh will let me get out of jail as well? Did he remember? He didn't remember. Betrayed a third time. So there he is still stuck in jail a longer period of time until sometime later Pharaoh has a dream of his own. And he consults his magicians and enchanters and asks them to interpret it, and they can't. And the butler says, oh, I know a guy who helped me some time ago. Maybe you should go talk to him. And so Pharaoh goes to Joseph in jail, and and Joseph is able to interpret his dream. He explains to Pharaoh that there will be seven years of prosperity and abundance in the land, such as the land has never seen. There's going to be a harvest that you couldn't even imagine there's going to be grain filling the earth, like the sands on the Pacific Ocean. And then after that, there will be seven years of famine. It is set and it is decreed by God. And then Joseph declares to him that you would be wise, Pharaoh, at this time to appoint a manager over all of this. Someone who is wise and discreet, someone who knows how to handle money, Someone who knows how to build these granaries and manage people. And who will take care of the land and take care of your people. Because seven years of famine will follow those seven years of abundance. Well, Joseph, Pharaoh asked, do you know of any such man? Well, Pharaoh, it's funny you should ask. Joseph answers. And seven years of abundance proceeded across the land and then the rain stopped and the winds began to blow and babies started to get hungry and bellies began to swell and people began to die and Egypt ate They didn't eat much, but they ate, and they survived as Joseph slowly opened up those granaries one by one over the preceding months. Eventually, the surrounding world gets news that Egypt is storing some grain, and so they send people back to Egypt to get grain flour for themselves, including Joseph's now 11 brothers, they go back, and they come to Joseph, and they say, would you please provide for our family? And Joseph knows who they are, but they don't know who Joseph is. They believe he's dead. So they come to him, and he gives them these huge sackfuls of grain to care for the family for the next year. The next year, he still is aware that, that they're out there. They don't know who he is, and he's wrestling through all that has happened to, the, to him. Yet again, they come back a year later, and now after 22 years, of captivity he brings them near to him and you see the climax of the story here in Genesis 45 if you turn there with me Genesis 45 looking at verse 3 Joseph's been wrestling with all of this over these past years and it says here in verse 3 Joseph said to his brothers I am Joseph is my father still living But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one who sold you into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land and for the next five years, There will be no plowing and reaping, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not for you, it was not you who sent me here, but it was God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Wow, what a response. Don't be distressed, my brothers. Because it was God himself who sent me here for a purpose bigger than you or I could have ever imagined to preserve a remnant for our family and for the nations. And so I forgive you. Come near to me. Here's one takeaway that I get from this study in the life of Joseph, which is so critical for my life today. Trusting God's bigger plan strengthens us to rise up even when we're stuck in a dungeon. Trusting God's bigger plan enables us to rise up even when we feel like we're stuck in a dungeon. Does anyone in this room feel like you're stuck in a dungeon today? Anyone else? Is there ever been a time in your life you felt like you were stuck in a dungeon? Okay, only a few people raised their hands. The rest of you are lying. Okay? (laughs) Everyone feels like at one time or another you're stuck in a pit. And you say, how do I get out of this terrible pit that I'm in? Well, that's the time that we have to trust God's bigger plan. Joseph had no clue what God was doing in this moment. But in God's providence, he designed that Egypt would be saved through Israel. And what an ironic twist that Israel would be saved through Egypt in this moment. Even as these nations today tend to be at each other's throats on a regular basis, God places this Israelite, this Hebrew, into Egypt, and he saves Egypt through this Israelite. And then the nation of Israel becomes a nation through Egypt. And if it wasn't for Joseph there in Egypt, there would be no such thing as the 12 tribes of Israel there would be no such thing as a nation except for that dungeon. In the midst of betrayal, in the midst of loneliness, in the midst of despair, in the midst of the prison that you are in, I pray that you can remember that there are times that God is doing something bigger. And you won't know what it is usually until after the fact. We usually don't get to see God's plan till sometime later. And so it was in Joseph's life. So Joseph rises up and becomes VP. He becomes the chief financial officer, the vice president of Egypt. When he started as a slave, as a servant, a wickedness of all, he's a, he's a slave and he rises up out of that and becomes VP. Or Joseph is given power and he doesn't use that power to break people. When his brothers come to him, as I probably would have done, what does he use his power for? To bless them. He does the impossible. He forgives his brothers. When most of us would be filled with bitterness and grudge keeping, and rightfully so. Listen now to these words from Genesis 50, in which Joseph says, To his brothers. This is so powerful. Would you read this out loud with me, please? Let's all join in together. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of. Oh, what a story this is. Man, Hollywood needs to get a hold of this story. What vivid drama. You intended to harm me, you intended to kill me, but God is so much bigger than your sorry plan. God is not going to allow evil to win the day. He isn't. Now, to be sure, let's be honest, Joseph had a year to come to this point. Forgiveness isn't easy, is it? He had a year to wrestle with his brothers and his thoughts about his brothers before he was able to muster up enough courage to forgive. And they did need to apologize to him, which they did. And if you read this narrative well, later this week, you'll see six different times the Bible says that Joseph, this man's man, weeps. That's how painful betrayal is. It brings you to your knees. And so Joseph weeps and he weeps and he weeps some more and finally he says, I'm going to forgive. And he didn't let them off the hook. He said, What you did was evil. He didn't blame God either. This verse that we just read doesn't mean that God is to blame for what is happening in your life or God is responsible for evil. No, of course not. Humans are responsible for evil. We're responsible for our own sins. Something terrible happens to you, humans are responsible for that sin. But God in his wisdom, God in his foreknowledge is able to do exceedingly beyond all we could ever ask or imagine. According to his power in knowing the future, victory will be his at the end of the day. He's able to see the beginning from the end. And one of his specialties is turning the present manure into fertilizer for tomorrow. We got to trust in God's bigger plan. And as we do, it strengthens us to rise up even when we're stuck in a dungeon. And then finally, we trust in God's bigger plan. And as we do, it helps us fight the feeling of meaninglessness. We all struggle at times with this feeling of meaninglessness. It's a universal reality that one time or another, you probably are going to feel like there's a lack of meaning in your life. What you're saying, I didn't choose this for myself. Why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? Why is God doing this to me? Why doesn't God just relieve me of this great pain that that I'm in right now? I didn't choose this far for myself. Well, here's a hero in Joseph who would never have chosen 22 years of captivity for himself. And we all have this tendency to get sucked into our own little moments and believing that this little moment that we're in is going to be the all-encompassing moment for our lives, and it won't be. Now, I understand why we would do that, because it's our moment, and our moment is painful no matter what anyone else says. It is. That's a reality that we have to wrestle with. But I got to tell you, whatever your moment is, you can get out of it. And there's people around you here in this room who love you. There's a God who will never leave you or forsake you. And this moment, though, can feel all-encompassing. We can get out of it. You think of Joseph, if he would have said, I'll never get out of this moment. I'll be in this jail forever. I'll be a captive forever. And what if he chose to give up in that moment? We wouldn't have Jesus. Do you realize that? Because Jesus came from the line of Judah. And Judah was the brother of Joseph. And Judah dies if Joseph isn't there serving God. You never know what impact you're going to have on other people, even in a very disturbing and painful moment. So don't ever give up. There will always be a cadre of people around you who are deeply affected, if you remove yourself from this world, don't give up. God will do exceedingly and abundantly beyond what we can imagine, even through our periods of suffering. we got to trust in God's bigger plan to help us fight through the time of meaninglessness. Now, I know there's people in this room who say, I'm going through four brutal years of high school or college, in which I feel like I'm the butt of people's jokes, in which things aren't working out for me in college. I failed a class. I don't know what's going to happen. Someone broke up with me. I I feel like I'm I'm constantly being bullied. I know what that's like. Do you want to know what it's like to be a teenager who stutters? I know what that's like. You'll get beyond it. You'll get beyond it. I promise you. you. You might feel like, I got such a horrible job. I'll never have something better than this. This is so meaningless. How am I going to move on? Or he dumped me, she dumped me. How do I move on? You got to prove this to me, Adrian, that my life has meaning. Okay, let me prove it to you. Here's what the Bible says. I, I, I can't prove it to you from another religion of the world. I don't know what you've come in believing today. I can't prove it to you through another worldview. I've studied all of them. And the only religion in the world that I know of that provides an answer to this really important grinding question, where do we get meaning in life? The only religion I know of that provides an answer to that question is the religion called Christianity, the religion of Jesus Christ that comes from the cross of Christ and the scriptures. So listen to me here. The Bible tells us that you are created in the image of God. That means you have meaning. Genesis 1. The Bible tells us that you are fearfully and wonderfully specially made by him. Even if you're an accident to your mom and dad, you are not an accident to God. The Bible tells us that we all have resisted God, but he loved us still. So much so that he went to a cross and he said, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself, not some people. I desire all people to come to myself. And we continue to resist him nonetheless. But even if you resisted him, even to the point of coming here today, still today I believe Jesus would be looking out over this room as he did over Jerusalem. Back in AD 30, he looked out over Jerusalem and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how much I've longed to gather you unto myself as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Are you willing? Are you willing? No matter how much you've pushed against God in the past, no matter how much you've passively ignored God in the past, no matter how much you've actively resisted God in the past, still today God shows his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. For you and me. Don't know where you're at today, but that's the offer. And he says we're that valuable to him. You think of Ephesians 2 8 and 9, which we talk about a lot. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves is a gift of God, not by works, so that no man or woman could ever boast. God has saved us from our sin, but it doesn't stop there. It goes on in Ephesians 2 10 to say this He saved us for something. He saved us from sin. He saved us for good works. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God doesn't just want to save you from sin. He wants to save you with a meaning and a purpose to bless other people, that you would be a distributor of good works to all the people that you meet this week. God, make me a man of influence today. That gives meaning to our lives. You know this word handiwork in the Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in? That word is poema. Poema. You are God's poem. Not someone else. You. You're God's poem. You're God's sonnet. You're God's piece of artwork. And he has created you for the purpose of doing good works which God has prepared in advance that you would walk in them. And that's what Joseph did. He walked in the good works that God gave to him. He trusted in God by faith as God was revealed to him at that time, which gave him courage and identity before the living God and gave him the ability to do good even when others were doing harm to him. That gives you meaning. Now again, you may not feel that in the moment that you're in, So you have to trust God. You have to choose to live into it. You have to choose to internalize some of these key verses that I've been talking about. If you want to email me this week, I'd be happy to email you a number of those verses that I'm talking about here. You you choose to memorize them. You choose to chew on them, to internalize them. And they redefine the way you see yourself. They redefine your sense of identity. They redefine this question will there be any meaning for me in this world? Absolutely. But we got to lean into what God says about us and be defined by that as opposed to what people say about us. I want to invite the band forward. And as they come, I'd like to just reinforce for a moment how profound Joseph's story is as it relates to Jesus' story. Because the things that you see in Joseph that you love from this story, they foreshadow a beautiful portrait of our Savior that we would know what God is like. Listen to just a few of the ways that Joseph is a forerunner to Jesus, our King, our Savior, our friend. Joseph and Jesus alike were the beloved of their father. He was the beloved son of his father. And yet he was rejected by his own. He was cast into a deep, dark pit. And he was sold for the price of a slave. He suffered undeservedly. He got out of that pit. He was seated at the right hand of the king. His title meant Savior of the world. That's what Joseph means, that's what Jesus means. Savior of the world. Individuals would come to him to receive the gift of life, and without his generosity, those individuals would perish. He's not a Savior for a few. He's a multi-ethnic savior for every tribe and every nation and every race and any person who will call upon his name. And he is the forgiver who enables us to forgive. You meant it for evil, but my God, he meant it for good. Sounds a whole lot like Jesus His arms stretched across, nails in his hands and in his feet, side pierced with a sword. Father, forgive them. Forgive them. They got no idea what they're doing. Forgive them. So Jesus, we come to you. We come to you and we say we need you. We tell you, Lord, we don't have what it takes to do the things you call us to. We tell you, Lord, we don't have what it takes in us to forgive the people that have wronged us. We tell you that by ourselves, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, we won't find meaning that is transcendent beyond our present moment. So we give ourselves to you. I wonder if I have friends here in this room who need help forgiving someone who has wronged you. While our eyes are closed, would you just raise your hand and admit that to God, and I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you if you need help forgiving someone who has wronged you. Father, I pray for these who are raising their hands right now that you would give them help. There's many in this room. There are people here who have been deeply wronged by God, deeply wronged by someone who has hurt them, and God, they need your help. They need your help to forgive someone who has hurt them. Would you rise them up? Would you give them strength where they are weak? Would you do in them what they cannot do for themselves? you do in them, what you did in Joseph. I trust you, God. I believe by faith you're going to do that for these men and women. And there might be other people in this room who have never actually done business with God. You've been riding the coattails of someone else's faith. You've been riding the coattails of cultural Christianity. You've been riding the coattails of your parents' faith. You've been practicing mere religion instead of true relationship with Jesus. And if you're in that place right now and you're ready to surrender your life to Christ by faith, trusting in the one who can save you raise your hand at this moment raise your hand and keep it high in this moment thank you brother I see you in the back thank you sister in the front in the front I see you sister thank you brother I see you in the middle sister and brother in the middle in the back I see all of you see you brother in the way back there thank you thank you now what you're doing right now is not small it's not just raising our hand in a room it's not just another time of saying I'm trying to get hell insurance it's none of that It's saying, Jesus, I believe you are Savior. I believe you're the King. I believe you're the Son of the living God. I believe you're Lord, and I commit myself to following you. And if you're in that place today that you're willing to follow him, let me just pray for you. Let me pray for you right now. Father, I pray for those who have raised their hands. Oh, Jesus. Let's say this together. Oh, Jesus. Please forgive me. All together, let's say it together. Please forgive me. For the ways that I have failed you, for the ways that I have failed others, I look to the cross, I receive your love, I receive eternal life. Thank you, Jesus, for paying it all. And all God's people say, amen, amen. Let's give God a round of applause.